Related to football, so should be the good. old, the old round football, eh? Not the, not the other one that was taking the headlines this weekend. Um, but yeah, I mean, let's kick it off with uh, Arsenal six, West Ham nil. Um, I mean, there's not much to talk about here in the vein of Arsenal, other than Declan Rice dropping two assists and a goal on his former club's head. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts, West Ham? David Moyes, where are they at? Oh, okay. So you're doing us all the the pleasure of of just skirting over the fact that Arsenal won a big game, are you? Arsenal, oh. Arsenal did what now? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, look, <laughs> I, I I think it's fair to say that whilst Arsenal played well, West Ham also played quite bad. Um, in this game, it was not just a matter of Arsenal absolutely ripping them to shred. Which sorry, which is the case, but like just made it impossible for West Ham to play. It's kind of the the cherry on top of, in a negative sense, I suppose, of the uh, string of performances West Ham have put together and the string of losses and, it, you know, culminating with half the stadium emptying out at halftime, booze for Moisey at the end. And I wonder, is this the ticking time bomb uh, that we, we often talk about, Owen? Is this our latest Doomsday episode that we will need to track and monitor throughout the season? I think overall... If you're a West Ham fan, I won't. I, I I've been listening to some of their perspectives on a few podcasts and this and that, and it seems the general consensus is that whilst he's he's delivered titles and he's sorry delivered trophies and he he's put West Ham in a good European position and he you know he's the club and the fans owe him a lot of credit. The way they're setting up this year between. And, and their performances as a whole it, it has just been very, very poor. And I wonder, is it a little bit of, as we're seeing with, with Roy Hodgson and Crystal Palace, do you kind of stick or twist at this stage? You know, like you kind of know what you're going to get with, with uh, David Moyes. I I hear that he's, his contract uh, has been, the contract discussions have been put on pause on the back of this result by the West Ham hierarchy. But yeah, ultimately... When you're playing pretty turgid ball where you're kind of meant to be a top six, top eight team and you more often than not cannot dominate a game, you know, when the onus is put on you. And I think that's why West Ham have a few freak results. It's like the onus is put on them to to play and to break down teams. And especially when they lose their one creator in that position really is Pakita because whilst Kudus is, is, a, is an exciting player, I think he's far more direct than he is like a lockpick that Paqueta would be. And equally, you know, there's only so much Calvin Phillips, Ward Prowse, Suchek and Alvarez can do from the deep line position to unlock a defence. So I don't know. Set pieces and, and counter-attack seems to be the way with West Ham. And I don't think that's enough for the fans who have been at home. Uh, I would say you watch this game with way great interest. So 
What would you yeah. say on West Ham at the minute? No, I agree with you. I think like, you know, when you're talking about unpicking a defense, unpicking the lock of a defense, that's a problem enough when you're missing your lock pick like Pakata. And then when you're talking about unpicking the lock of a defense that is Saliba and Gabriel, it that's not ideal. Like that's really not ideal. Like the, any Premier League defense is going to be hard to break down, but when it's when you're missing your guy who does it and you're facing those two, it's a bit of a nightmare because like, they are just like every time I watch them and it's starting to really stand out now that the sort of gears are going in the team. It's just like these two guys together. It's terrifying. Like it's scary how good they are together. Um, yeah, obviously they had their little boo-boo against Liverpool, but otherwise this season in general, they've been fantastic. Um, I don't think you can pin your goals tally specifically to your center halves but you know i think uh in arsenal's case they've got a pair of very good ones it's no secret i've i've kind of gushed about pakata for like i think a couple of years now um i think i think he just screams arsenal player to me and i mean that in the complimentary sense um i know he was almost going to city in the summer but yeah, I I think he's a phenomenal player. When you're missing a player like that, you're always going to struggle. Um, yeah, I think West Ham themselves have slowly been moving away from that identity that was created under Moyes. And that has been done under his eye and under his watch as well. So I kind of feel like they are both reaching their natural conclusion. However, I don't think he leaves until Europe is finished. Because that's kind of when their season ends. So they could go all the way in the Europa League and then that's it. All done. All good again. You know what I mean? Um, but otherwise, I think they're all right. I mean, like, you know, bringing in players like Kudus, uh, Dinos Mavropanos, James Ward-Prowse, like good additions to this. The side is a good side. And then on top of that as well, you've got, um, you know, some other quality players in the team, like we mentioned, Pakita. Like I think, um, you know, Ariola is a good goalkeeper. I think they've got some good players. Like I like um, uh, Aguirre and like a couple of those other lads. They're good football players. But when I look at it as a whole, and I, and you see that like uh, Said Banrama has gone now, and Pablo Fornals is gone now. It's like, oh, they are, there are people slipping out the back door as well of this side. So it's not as stacked as it would have been. Um, and whether it was stacked to begin with, I'm sure West Ham fans would argue themselves. But in, just in terms of quality bodies, um, they've let a couple of people go. And I just wonder, are they heading towards a transitional moment? Um, then again, that depends. I think that's an important point you raised, though, Owen, in terms of like a natural conclusion. And even when you mentioned Benrahma and Fornals there, like the summer before last, we would have seen Skamaka uh, come in as a sort of the new centre forward, who was a very different type of player. And even to a certain extent, Pakita didn't bet in straight away either. And West Ham kind of went for a sort of glory, sorry, more like talented European players. And like, I'm not to reduce Moyes down too much, but there is a bit of a trend in, in the players he does utilise. And I think last summer, uh, on the other hand, you saw that they flipped back. You know, as you say, they bought um, 
Ward Prowse. They brought in like Kudus. Yeah, okay, that's a bit of a flair player. But I, even the way they brought in Alvarez, who's uh, the way I've seen him play anyway this season is very much a sort of destroyer defensive midfielder. Um, and obviously Kudus brings a, is a very direct player and good on the counter attack as well, which seems to suit Moyes. So they've kind of been shifting away from more rounded players potentially uh, to then suit players under Moyes' style. And when you say it's coming to its natural conclusion, I wonder, given results aren't stellar and the outlay they've been spending is quite significant, and ultimately they've Danny Ings, you know, at the club some reason somehow. Is it? the natural conclusion because they're at the risk of going too moist um, and I wonder is that going to be the issue never, never go full moist as one would say yeah like I mean I just kind of think that bringing in players like the Ajax boys um, Kudus and Alvarez uh, which is a surprise like again I'll never not be surprised that Kudus plays for West Ham like I'll just I'll just get that on the record. I think did I say this before on the podcast? I think I might have. Like he was like watching those players in with my own eyes, like in person over the last few years. Kudus was always the one that I was like, he's the one. Like he's the one that everybody should be after. Like he is he was just head and shoulders above everybody else. Um like if there was like Three players that I would, three players that I would have like re- said were really stand out to me, at in those like Ajax teams over the last few years, it would have been Kudus, it would have been Alvarez, and it would have been Yuri and Timber. <laughs> and it's like two of those players play for West Ham United. You know what I mean? Out of all the players that could have been plucked, um, so I think they do have two really good players on their hands there, no doubt about it. I just wonder are those David Moyes players. And then you've got a player like Dinos Mavropanos who left and like did quite well at Leverkusen as far as I'm aware. Um, like in terms of his his actual own singular performances, not Leverkusen's performances themselves. Like he showed up pretty nicely for them. Oh, Stuttgart, Stuttgart. Oh, sorry, Stuttgart. I always get mixed up between the badges, man. Like honestly, you're the you're the German football expert, not me. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean. I saw Dinos play in person. That's what I know. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. I should have left it to you. Um, I, if I'm not mistaken, they lost, didn't they? That day, did they lose? No, no, they won like five nil. Oh, they like won. Great oh, day out like, for me. Yeah. Going over to see Stuttgart, but yeah, fair no, no. play to you. Fair play Dino to you. got uh, got in the game. And yeah. then he went to West Ham, so maybe those are related. Scored against Arsenal as well a few months ago. Uh, his his old club. But um, but yeah, good player Dinos Mavropanos. Like always had a bit of something about him. Um, like they've got these players on their hands, and I just wonder: are they setting up to be taken on by someone else? It, that's kind of what it feels like to me. I don't know. I'm sure David Moyes would disagree, but he's very long in the tooth now for this kind of crack. Like you know what I mean? If they go out of Europe, then that's when I think they might make the change. But until then, I think they're quite safe. I think you know my rule of thumb. Like I think they were a goal or two off my rule of thumb here. If Arsenal scored one or two more then I think there's a bigger conversation to be had. Now, I think that was at the mercy of Arsenal and the substitutes rather than West Ham suddenly being decent defensively in the last 20 minutes. Um, had Arsenal have kept their full outfit on, I think this could have been very ugly for West Ham. I don't think Arsenal would have stopped scoring, to be honest. 
And I think yeah, West Ham are it, almost it, lucky it, to I, get I away with the six. It's all all down to this one result either. Like they they are no, of course not. poorly, and yeah. given they conceded three to Manchester United, you know that's uh, that's pretty bad going. Um, given how they performed the season. Yeah, I mean, well, should we talk about Man United then? In that case, um, unless you've anything else to say on West Ham. No, no. Well, I, I yeah, I was searching for a segue potentially. The, the the other one I had in my pocket was you know Ten Hag spent all those years at Ajax and decided he'll take Anthony as opposed to Kudus. But by the by, uh, oh, yeah, which he shouldn't have done. Like he should have known that. <laughs> like he should know that better than anybody else. Um, I don't know. There's that. I, I just think I just think Ten Hag's friends with the right agents. Well, the wrong agents. Um, I think his buddies. He's making his buddies a few quid, to be honest. But regardless, he's making uh, he's making a few Manchester United fans smile in the last few weeks. Um, who'd have thought? Few wins on the bounce now. Um, Rasmus Hoyland seems to be scoring goals. Scott McSauce seems to be the old the old. Speaking of David Moyes, the old Fellaini trick. Um, there seems to be a couple of positive things going on. Um, I've I've sort of a loaded question for you on this, because a lot of people like a lot of people have made this point. Number one, do you think this is sustainable until the end of the season? Do you think it's going to be a push for Champions League? And number two, do you think this has anything to do with the influence of Radcliffe and Ineos and like? even if not directly, the positivity of change at Manchester United is maybe affecting the on-field results? Uh, I would question the... So I'll deal with the reactive thing first. I don't think so. Like, that's been on the the cards now since Christmas Eve and performances have been up and down all the way. I think what you can attribute to the upturn in, in results as opposed to maybe completely an upturn in performance is that players have come back to fitness and I think that's been quite important. Like there was a period of time where you had neither Martinez or Varane available. And the fact of the matter is they're the two best center halves of the club. And unfortunately Martinez only really survived one game uh, before, you know, injuring his uh, metatarsal and being out for eight weeks, which is a real shame, but you saw the upturn in quality. The other concern would be that Luke Shaw went off uh, as a precaution against Villa. And again, you saw how much better United and Rashford were for Luke Shaw's presence uh, on the left flank and in the left half space. And I think he's one of the most key players for Manchester United. So the fact that several players like Casemiro also back to full back in the side and mine to sit next to Mainu and you, you kind of have a full strength side. Garnacho's ability to play off the right has really made hay where the sun wasn't shining given Anthony's performances this season. So all in all, few key players came back and the team is performing a whole lot better. However, to a certain extent, they were quite lucky in this Villa game, given Villa were the better side for large chunks of the game. And if not for... I, I would actually attribute most of the credit for that goal to Diogo Dallo's cross, uh, but obviously McSauce was there. Sorry, McTominay, as his Christian name is, um, was there to head it in. And I think I saw a statistic that Scott McTominay has contributed 12 points to Manchester United this season in terms of game-winning goals, so fair play to him. That's great as an option off the bench, but given McTominay was playing a fair few games and just before Christmas on, I don't know if you recall, I was given instinct that, you know, the whole attacking plan seemed to be geared towards McTominay crashing the box and leaving United quite open to the counter-attack. In terms of a Champions League push... 
it's funny they have kind of dragged themselves back into the picture especially by beating Villa who are next above them they might pip someone to the post be it Villa or Tottenham in fifth if results continue this trajectory and I think if they do beat Foot Luton on the weekend that's the fourth league win in a row you know that is building momentum and so long as Casemiro or Varane or Maguire don't get injured or Shaw especially there's a chance that this could come good and like you know, you've got a few players like even Malassia to come back. You might even if Shaw does get injured, then you'll have a, at least an orthodox left back to play in the position. Mason Mount, you know, remember him, Owen? Uh, he he has to come back into a side in which he's barely featured. Like I be, I watched the I watched the Wolves game. Uh, he 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 did his best. I think I didn't. I missed his next game, and then by the third game of the season, he was injured or something, as far as I recall. So I've barely seen him play. Um, but look. The main thing is Hoyland scoring goals. Mine is playing fantastic in midfield and potentially could save United 60, 80 million in the transfer market this summer just by the way he's performed and emerged from the academy. Um, so I don't want to write United out of the Champions League picture. It's just that Tottenham and Villa have been a f- whole lot more consistent for a whole lot longer than Manchester United. And given how the season's gone thus far, you would question. Like, United have only just gotten back to a zero-goal difference, and they were in the negative for many a week until this point. And even the results they have achieved is against West Ham's, you know, as we were discussing, who've been quite poor recently, a last-minute winner against Villa, and that calamitous 4-3 win against Wolves, in which they should have done a whole lot better in defending. But, as I say, players are back fit, and maybe they can build on this. I, I don't know, from your perspective, what do you think? Do you think United are going to be in the picture, or... Is this just all an illusion that sometimes they play nice football, but only sometimes? I mean, Champions League, it's maybe a little bit too early to say, because, but that also depends on how many Champions League places there are available, to be honest. Like, because that metric is sort of a bit messed up in my head now, you know what I mean? I'm not sure. So, maybe, like, I could totally see United finishing fifth. You know what I mean? So, if that's good enough for Champions League football, then yeah, absolutely. Um, I like the look of mining. What I will say is that there have been a lot of like false dawns with players like him. Like, he sort of, I look at him and I see a player like an Ainsley Maitland-Niles at Arsenal who was like, quite hot off the press and then it's like, you know what I mean? It's like, and he was young, he was energetic and it was boom and it's like, but he never had that thing, you know what I mean? To jump up to the next step. And it's like, um, I think United have got a couple of those players now. And it's it's sort of a wait and see game. I think Champions League football will be beneficial to Manchester United next season. However, I almost think when I think of like players like Bukayo Saka and Emil Smith-Rowe, if United were to be in a situation where they had Europa League football next year, I feel like they've got the players now who would benefit immensely from being in that competition. Not that that should be the motivator like to not play Champions League football, but what I more so mean is like I don't think it's a disaster if United end up with Champions League football because or sorry, with Europa League football. Because I think there's a lot of players there now, and maybe more to come in the summer if you're talking about bringing more players i think europa league football next year could be great for rasmus hoyland like it's a shame you're not in it now you know what i mean like 
I think players like him who like will benefit from more game time and, and more goals, he's banging them in right now. I think some like European football for him would be like amazing. I think for players like Mainu, for players like Garnacho, who could really sink, who are ready to sink their teeth into European opposition, whereas I think they'd suffer more so in in the Champions League. Do you understand what I mean? Do you get what I'm getting at? I don't know what you're talking about. Rasmus Hoyland is the top scorer in this season's Champions League. Oh yeah, but you know what I mean. I just... <laughs> Stop. You know what I mean. Ah. You know what I mean. Rasmus Hoyland is the top scorer in this season's Champions League for the next few weeks. Okay. T- t- tied with Erling Haaland. Yeah, tied and, with... And, and Alvaro Morata <laughs> and Antoine Griezmann. But we won't talk about those two as much. <laughs> tied, tied with those bottlers, eh? <laughs> like, <laughs> but you know what I mean. I think players like Kobe Mainu, like Alejandro Ganacho, um, like Rasmus Hoyland himself... If like I said, I what I'm more so saying is I'm not saying you should be shooting for Europa League football because nobody should. But if you end up in that competition next year, I think there's a lot of benefit to blooding that talent and having them take that step up. Like I can firmly, 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 firmly say Bukayo Saka would not be the player he is without Europa League football. And he would not have gotten that time in the Champions League. He only got that time in the Europa League. Same with Emil Smith Rowe, and obviously the trajectories of both of those players has gone a little bit different over the last year or two. But I think it's a great stomping ground for players who are on the cusp of either being brilliant or getting sold. <laughs> so, like, I think I think it's a great sort of litmus test for is this player actually going to be a guy that we're going to use in our first 11 for years to come. Um, and on top of that, sorry, you want to say something? Well, I, I, no, no, you go ahead. I, I just want to touch on one point before we, we finish off the United piece. Yeah, I, I like, um, I'm sort of liking how malleable United are at the minute. Like, I think, again, it's just a wider conversation as to like, what's the end game here? Who's going to carry the ball over the over the line? You know what I mean. Who's gonna Who's gonna be there at the finish line when this project comes to its ultimate fruition? There's a lot of like larger Man United questions that I think are better served to be posed in May rather than now, uh, when we have an idea of Champions League or Europa League or nothing at all, or how have things gone over the last month or two, etc., etc., etc. I think that's all super important. But ultimately, last couple of games, it's positive And it's sort of, I just wonder, can United benefit from the chaos themselves? Can they like, and this is the great thing. This is the magic of the Premier League, right? Is like, could we be sitting there in April and going, holy shit, United are actually a couple of points clear in a position that is going to give them Champions League football, which is not something that we probably would have said before Christmas. So it's like, you know what I mean? It's sort of coming out of the smoke, you know, uh, Kimi Raikkonen style and being like, oh shit, <laughs> like they're still here. Um, I think that's important. Just maintain results, maintain points and see where you are in a couple of weeks time. Like we're, we're well into February. This is what I keep saying. It's like, holy sh- like we're, we're getting there, man. Um, there's not long left. You know, when I go into the Premier League fixtures and I scroll, I, it's only one flick of the thumb now. Um, 
So, yeah, I don't know. I'm not editing that out. <laughs> you have any final thoughts on Man United? Yeah, I, I just briefly like to kind of circle back to what you were saying about Mainu and, and, and like Garnacho, I think it's too. Like Hoyland, you know, there's that image of the three sitting against sitting on the side against West Ham, but like I, I when you're talking about them and Saka and Smith Rowe and Europa League and everything else and like I would say I, I get the point totally, but when it comes to like like the, the Garnacho and, and, and Mainu have the potential to be, you know, United's next ten years together uh, as a as a base of a young young squad and, and like the, the main two I, I don't agree with your assessment of my new per se I think he's the first you know I've seen many United player from the academy come and go at, and not read you know it was Brandon Williams we had Makeda we've had oh uh, you know all sorts I don't want to go through the whole list but like mine is the first one that's come into the team and gone like he's 18 and he looked head and shoulders above everyone else in the squad now it also is probably because the squad was squad was in a chaotic state however watching him boss around senior players and like even the way he interacts with them and he knows what he's doing he's a player who always seems to have time on the ball I think he's ready for whatever throws at him the only hindrance he's going to have is injuries Garnacho on the other hand probably could learn how to attack against the settled defence because that guy is very much just headless chicken let's go for it and let's take a shot from 30 yards and let's go for a bicycle kick against Everton and you know he I mean? like he's got that sort of he's got that sort of thing about him Garnacho where I like you know he feels like one of the lads I would have played with at under nines. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he's he's got that sort of like you sort of uh he's just gonna grab the ball and he's gonna leg it. Um but that's also exciting as well. There's a like Cristiano like not to not to make lofty comparisons, Cristiano was like that for a minute, you know what I mean? Um Yeah. But I think so, I think as well, Garnacho is very much benefits from a goldfish brain in terms of when he makes a mistake or he balloons it over the bar, he kind of just <laughs> forgets yeah. about it and does it again, um, without much care in the world. I I think I do think that comparison with Ronaldo in terms of the early days is apt. I'm not saying he's going to hit those heights, but hmm. the way he plays the butt game is similar to how when Ronaldo first came on the scene as United's. I, yeah. But like you can even see the development. Like you know, Garnacho would since the move to the right wing, you would have seen him probably shoot at oblique angles quite often. But even against Villa, you saw him sticking his head up, and like he is starting to understand and form a bond with Rashford and Hoyland up front as to where players are going to be. So takes time. But like, yeah, look, I'd say I it, I will say though, like I will say when you describe Kobe Minu, I'm just like that's Ainsley Maitland Niles that you're talking about. Like it it. Sounds so familiar to me. What I will say, though, on my point when I spoke about the Europa League and that kind of thing is, of course, I'm speaking from a perspective of I understand what happened with Bukayo Saka et al. When it comes to the Europa League at Arsenal. I think you have less time at Man United. I think you have less time. And I think the expectation at Man United is also, you know that these players should be able to play Champions League. Like, you know what I mean? It should be... I don't think the squad is in the same state that our, that, that Arsenal squad was in, if you know what I mean. As in like, it wasn't that bad. It's not that well, bad. Well, even... Yeah, it's not that bad. And like, But you also don't have the... like well, you, The problem children are on loan or have been kicked out of the club, per se. You know, you don't have an Ozil or the like kind of hanging around. And there isn't as much of the Kalasinachs and Mustafis as well. You know, those kinds yeah, of players yeah. who had to be 
cut loose over a yeah. period of time. And so they were I, all around at the time. Like, they were all pretty present. Um, precisely. I, I don't yeah, think yeah. the United squad is in said same shape no, that yeah, I Arsenal think... was at the time. But, look, beggars can't be choosers. <laughs> so, we, we, we shall see where they end up at the end of the season. Yeah. Because, like, Owen, to be honest, getting a bit positive, we're like, ooh, United, five points off, you know, Villa. Like, the, it was a big result coming bringing themselves closer to the top four, mm-hmm. yada, yada. They're playing Luton at Kenilworth Road next, this coming Sunday. And if ever there was a game United were going to shit the bed on, it's going to be that one. Um, and, yeah. you know, Ogbeni scoring a hat-trick against Luke Shaw or whatever. I, I can foresee them just losing it, losing the plot and getting done by Luton. I wouldn't be against a Chio hat-trick. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, should we talk about the... The you know the blue elephant in the room, maybe. I think so. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll let you take the lead on this one, Owen, because this is your specialist subject. <laughs> I I hate that you call this my specialist subject, man. It's not fair. Um, yeah, they're introducing blue cards, basically a sin bin. Um, this is a case of be careful what you wish for. I kind of advocated for something along these lines a few years ago on the podcast I think however now that it's come to it I think my opinion of referees has evolved over that period of time and now I'm in a place where in principle I like it I think it's positive I think I think the chasm between red cards you can get a red card for the stupidest of things the stupidest of second yellows which is the maximum punishment in the game, is getting removed from it. And you can get a red card for breaking somebody's leg. I think there's too much in between. Like, one side and the other side, right? I think there's a lot of there's a lot of interpretation that has to go on. However, I feel like that referees will not know what to do with this card. I feel like they will mess it up. I feel like it will be so messy from the jump, from the get-go. Players will be getting sin like players will be getting sin bin for all kinds of stuff. Like we'll have a camera angle where a player's back is to the camera. We won't see what he said, and he'll get a blue card and he'll be like, Oh well, what did he say? We don't know. He said it in Italian. You know what I mean? And it's like, well, he's after getting taken off for ten minutes. Oh, and there you go. City are one nil up against Arsenal. Oh, that's the title race spun on its head. And it's like I just don't have the faith and the trust. That this is going to work. Um, and I don't understand why they're why all of a sudden they're just like, we're implementing this now. It's like I feel like there's places and times and cup competitions and other formats to introduce this in in a softer way. Rather than just being like, hey, let's do this now. I think this is a great idea. Um Yeah, but your thoughts. I am not positive on this. Yeah, like I think football spending too much time or or the lawmakers really, you know, looking at things like blue cards and everything else. Whereas I think some of the root cause with a lot of like VAR, say, as the most recent example of something new that came in, has been that it's highlighted massive grey areas and inconsistencies in the law. So like I, I will have seen, in the last, since the introduction of VAR, I have seen so many more C paragraph 2AB section C3 
to discern why this is a, a hand bottle and it's like and even that is in, in and of itself is a gray area like i do you know the other season when like the whole thing i think villa lost to man city and it was like ming's did he or did he not make a true attempt to swing at the ball thus playing bernardo silva onside like there, there was all sorts of things that have been highlighted as issues and yet you're not really hearing about reforms in that sense you're hearing we're going to bring in blue cards which like a 10 minute also by the way 10 minutes in in football of a sin bin just seems like what's the result going to be here is the is the team with the blue card just going to play it around the back for 10 minutes and like kill the game for a period of 10 minutes or like is it really going to pose that much of a you know like it's hard to do that for 70 45 minutes do you know what i mean when there's a red card for your side but for you could probably style it out time like do you know what I mean? Is it just, well, just cause keep, more? keep the ball out of play? Like just like yeah, keep uh, go for a throw. Time waste. Yeah. You know, is that like are we gonna get double, triple, quadruple blue cards at once? Do you know what I mean? And like mm-hmm. even the application and, and the d- definition of what's cynical and what's like, you know, we've seen it this exactly. season. Exactly. Like, like is this is this gonna come down on Man City's head? Like is this surely like surely this is the worst thing that's ever happened to Manchester City in the way that they play. Yeah? You know what I mean? But, 100%. But like even to remember but, on the start of this season time wasting was a big deal and now yeah. where is it gone? But that's the thing it's like surely this is the worst thing that's happened to Man City they have like Arteta himself when he was a coach there spoke about it it's like yeah no we we intentionally bring the players down like it, he's like it's so it's super effective <laughs> he's like we ne- we barely ever concede from counterattacks because we just rip the player down and the best part about it is we don't even get fucking booked for it so it's like but the thing is, what ha- what happens now? Like it, I just like you said, it adds more scrutiny. So like, you know, like, just because he's on the tip of my tongue, Garnacho blasts through against Aston Villa, and Ezri Konsa rips him down, and gets a blue card. Yeah. Then same thing happens. Let's say, I don't know, um, Kudus blasts through against Man City. Raji rips him down, doesn't get a blue card. You know what I mean? And it's like, that's a blue card. No, it's a yellow card. No, it's no card. He didn't get a card. Why didn't he get a card? Which card should it have been? Should it have been a red card? Was he the last man? Should it have been a blue card? Was it cynical? Or should it be a yellow card? It wasn't cynical at all. Should we just give him loads of cards? Should we give him a deck of cards? Like, it's... I just feel like, like, in my opinion, and I feel like this opinion is correct, the referees are already struggling with handling the interpretation of the game in the Premier League. There's a lot of pressure on them. I do sympathize. There there is no one interpretation of the game at the moment in the Premier League or not even close to one. There seems to be hundreds depending on the atmosphere, depending on the referee, depending on the time of year, depending on the teams, depending on the stadium and depending on the pressure surrounding said game. There are too many factors that are involved in deciding how a referee how a game is refereed. And now we're adding one more thing to the mix. And I just think, I like, I've sort of said it for a while now. I sort of think we're nearing this, like, refereeing day of doom where something is going to happen that is going to just stick out to us all as remember that time that this happened and it changed. I It's going to get a team, like... In in not not necessarily because obviously the thirty eight game season there's a compilation of stuff that happens right, but what'll happen is it'll happen at the end of a season, maybe this one, 
maybe the next one, where it will lose a team a title or it will get a team relegated and there will be this feeling of soreness that is just non-curable. I, I don't know about that, on because I think there's enough examples in history and that's never happened. Like, hand but of I think, God, the failure, the goal line technology. Oh, yeah, no, no, I know. Like, and Lampard, yeah, enough. I know. No, I know. I'm saying I, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. But what I'm saying is football is edging towards this hyper-scrutinous sort of direction where we have VAR now and we have now we have three different ways of looking at fouls or other means right we have so this this to me is only the beginning of the expanse there there will be more that will follow this and it will be there'll be a something something for everything you know what i mean well i think to be honest i don't, I don't think the blue card's going to make it out of this trial pit phase anyway like it seems too bizarre and like realistically to be honest what what is wrong with the like ah, there, there, there's something to be said like you know football is a sort of crafty skullduggery game in a lot of ways Do you know what i mean like you'll often see players or, or even in rugby or loads of sports like oh you know they, they are credited with you know the dark arts as we say so like you know Chiellini on sack in the Euro final, that kind of thing. It's like, well, look, he t- took the yellow for the team. He didn't get booked for the rest of the game. Like, you know, I think, you know, the descent thing should be dished out far more often and, and the like. But I think when you're talking about like watershed moments, Owen, and, and like, uh, I'm, I, to be honest, I think we're already seeing the, the seeds of it. You know, you look at that referee who was assaulted in Turkey and fans have been that's that's my concern that's what i'm saying it's like we're gonna get to a stage like i'm not saying like i'm saying what will happen like let's be realistic something like that probably like like yeah something like that refs could go on strike premier league shut down for a period of time maybe yeah like i'm saying let's be realistic right one sending off again in a like a second to last or final match of the season shouldn't really determine your overall outcome across the board of 38 games, 90 minutes per game plus added time. Like, you know what I mean? When you look at it from a holistic point of view, right? That's not the case. If you're just, if you're just being calm and reasonable and it's not your team that you're watching, right? But try telling that to those fans, right? Try telling that to a stadium full of 60,000 people who will feel wronged by this decision that they can point to that, like, you know, Hey, that didn't that didn't just not happen a few weeks ago. That didn't happen at three o'clock today in this incident where this happened. And it's like there's like you said, it's like section this, like this rule, this thing, this card, this whatever. And it's like there is fuel to the fire now for people to sort of go back at re- like referees should be the experts. We shouldn't even know what's in the feckin' rule book. We should just understand it as it like, you know what I mean? Like and when I say, of course, it should be available to us, but you know what I mean? We shouldn't know the the exact details. Like, we shouldn't have to look up what the exact rule is when something happens. Like, that doesn't happen at all. Like, and I'm not saying we get as simple as America where the referee turns to the television <laughs> and explains the rule. But I think they're almost digging their own grave in a sense. And... It's, and sorry, I should I should mention that this isn't the referees themselves making this decision. This is imposed upon them, and they are to act upon it. So I like I do sympathize with them as well. They also have to go about this and try and figure it out. 
Um, but I just think we're nearing a crisis point where something really, really bad is going to happen. Um, and it's not going to be pretty and it will result in a, in a serious fallout. And I think we're just going in a dangerous direction um, with the, with the hyper scrutiny of things. I mean, not to be, not to sound like an old fart or anything, but I sat down with a friend a few months ago when we were watching, um, we were watching a, a championship game because he's a fan of a championship team. And it was so enjoyable. It was in the cup, actually. But it was so enjoyable just to watch. And there, that high level of hyper-scrutiny wasn't there. Obviously, it's not the same level as the Premier League, which is important to note. But at the end of the day, it was like, was it, wasn't it? Okay, move on. Bang, gone. Like, we're never going to come back from VAR. VAR is never going to be dropped. I just think, let's get it to a stage where if we can take more out of referees hands like i'm a huge fan of the automated offsides i didn't think i would be then they're introduced and i was like oh these are brilliant it's just it's instantaneous it's very clear it's either offside or it's not it shows me a little graphic bang and we move on with the game things like that are perfect for football perfect but anything that involves interpretation or decision making is no bueno so I think adding more, I my opinion is let's hand out less red cards. Let's try and send people off less. Let's try and make sure that it's 11 versus 11 and that the ultimate punishment is dished out if and when necessary. And then we're good. Let's keep the ambiguity out of the game. And I think we're in a final place. I don't think this needs to be a thing is my ultimate line on the whole situation. Yeah, I think it's just adding like, certain things like that automated offside like make the ref's jobs easier i don't think this does and like when you consider like should you lose your goalkeeper for 10 minutes when and like stick an outfield player for do you know what i mean like are, you know in rugby they've rolling subs you know so that if some your your hooker is is a or a prop is sin binned you know you send on a replacement so you, you you have to you're enforced by the rules so that you don't you know, go to uncontested scrums. So you lose, you lose out somewhere else. Like, is that going to be part of this? If your keepers in, like, because keepers are specialist position. You can't rely on Giroud, you know, for Milan last season or, you know, or earlier this season to, to step in between the six or 10 minutes. That's just kind of mad. So I think there's too many ifs, buts and maybes and this just makes things more challenging than it should. Apparently it's been successful at grassroots, but I'm not sure. But it's, this, it, of course it's successful at grassroots. <laughs> Especially for dissent. Like, no child should be telling a referee to F off. Um, I... I <laughs> to be honest, I, I think know. that have you, ever told, have you ever told... The sh- I don't know if we told this story on the podcast, ever. Um, that you once told me... <laughs> you once told me off for giving out to a referee. Do you remember that? Uh, not especially, Owen, but the, from, from our time played together, it wouldn't shock me that I did. Yeah, 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 you, you you would have done that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I I believe it was probably my third or fourth game. We were playing rugby, by the way, so completely unacceptable to talk, to say anything to the referee at all. Um, oh, but I did coming from a, a background in soccer, so yeah, yeah. It, it explains a lot. <laughs> but I did have I did have a bit of a word with the referee, and it was uh, it was Sean who told me on the end not to do that. Um, but yeah, there's a little there's a little tip. It. 
that was all, that was over ten years ago now at this point, I believe. Um, I wonder does that inform our contrasting yeah, opinions on the matter? It's a very uh, like for anyone who's listened to the over one hundred episodes that we have of this podcast, that probably doesn't surprise anybody. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, did get did get one or two sin bins. Um, but that was that was very like you know, very not for dissent by the way. So, um, so that's fine. Um, yeah, I was surprised a, anyone that was never booked in my entire <laughs> ten plus years of playing rugby. But yeah. anyway, yeah, I was maybe a little bit more uh, naughty. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean, let's just maybe move on to one more nice point to end the podcast. Um, maybe I, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna state it in the way that I want to state it. Uh looks like Harry Kane isn't going to win a trophy this year. Well, in fairness to Harry Kane, it won't be his fault yet again because he's isn't, on doesn't track. Doesn't that make doesn't that make it even better? <laughs> no. Look, <clears throat> I'm not going to be the one to to do the whole anti-Spurs agenda uh, on this. I, I just watched Bayer Leverkusen versus Bayern Munich on Saturday and I was very enthralled given the nature of that game and how it was a massive title decider. And Leverkusen spanked Munich 3-0 in what was quite the performance from Javi Alonso's side. In the context of him becoming potential Liverpool manager, this, that and the other, it was quite an impressive performance given he changed up the whole style of play, tricked Thomas Tuchel essentially. And yeah, I think it. this is a game in which Bayer Leverkusen were really good, but ultimately I think the, the bigger talking point is partially that the Premier Leagueification of Bayern Munich is not paying off. And and my overall thought watching this game was it's a real shame to see Eric Bloody Dyer playing at the heart of Bayern Munich's defence because not only is he, you know, English and there's very few English players who do make that transition or, and transition successfully over to German football, but also I think it speaks to a wider issue I see with Bayern Munich, which, it, which is being instilled by Thomas Tuchel, is that, you know, I think it's really detracting from their identity as giants of German football. Um, and it's a real shame to see the Spurs virus seeping its way into serial winners and, and the effect it can have. But sorry, I, I said I wasn't going to lay the boot in on Spurs. I'll leave that down. But yeah, like, oh, it's just gas to me. This game was so, so on so many levels hilarious because like not only do you have as I say, Eric Dyer playing for Bayern Munich, that should never have happened in my opinion, given Dyer's quality. But equally, Stanisic, Leverkusen's right back broke the scoring deadlock. And he's on loan from Bayern Munich. He scored against his own side. And it's a situation which is even made more hilarious for me, given Bayern Munich found themselves in a position where they needed to sign a right back in the transfer window because they let Stanisic go on loan to Bayern Leverkusen and that they didn't have enough depth in that area. And they're also just letting Tuchel decide, you know what, Masveri's not up to it, Kimmich isn't up to it, this, that, and the other. Like, the power that Tuchel is wielding and not wielding well is is brilliant to me. I, I, I really enjoy his downfall as Bayern Munich manager because I think Nagelsmann was somewhat hard done by. And, like, even the fact that Bayern Munich sacked Oliver Kahn and uh, Salah, what's his name? Salah, they're, they're two directors on the final day of last year, despite them winning the league, you know, 
they kind of have become quite Manchester United-esque in their performance off the pitch, which is now bleeding into the pitch, I think. Um, but yeah, no, just a fun game, brilliant to watch, and I hope Bayer Leverkusen finally win the Bundesliga because that would be brilliant. And Xabi is a great coach. As a final note, just before we end the podcast, because um, I think you covered everything, I don't think I have to say anything more. Have you ever seen the award that they give the top scorer in the Bundesliga? A literal cannon. If Harry Kane has to hold his little cannon at the end of the season, having not, not won a trophy, to put next to it. Ah, yeah, but like, I mean, does that matter at the end of the day? Like, even like he'll probably go on to win the Bundesliga next year or the Pokal or something like that, right? But it's just still be... the Pokal as well this year. So yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's... This is the last. This is the last straw. He but could just... well win the Champions League. No, he won't. Um let's just like no he won't but i just love the idea of them not winning like even he might do it next year but even in his inaugural season away from spurs he couldn't do it and it'll just live with him forever and if it doesn't live with him it'll live with us (laughs) so like fantastic fantastic stuff but i think that's all of us covered for for this week i mean some more games uh we're kind of getting back into champions league season now european football season um you can get some early nights. Don't know the what week. you're talking about. Yeah, but um, listen, man, you you know how I feel now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, man. Um, until then, Shawnee, my friend. I'll see you out there. I'll see you out there.